Welcome to the Comfort Monk Podcast. Hello, world. We are talking from separate locations. Yeah, we normally don't do the uh, intros remotely, but uh, me and Dylan are no. separated right now. But, but we're making it work. Oh, yeah. Today, our episode is uh, Tom Waslick uh, of the Pennsylvania-based uh, band Planning for Burial. They've been going for probably more than a decade at this point. Um, and, uh, me and Tom talked about a pretty broad variety of topics. Uh, it, it wasn't a super focused conversation. Um, we probably talked more about music gear than (laughs) I do with most guests. Um, him being a, you know, an amplifier worshiper, but, uh, Dylan, you you're not uh, you don't have a huge history with playing for burial. What do you what do you think about uh, the playing for burial we listened to? Well, the what I first uh, heard out of what you sent me. I mean, the the first thing that I took away from it was that it uses a lot of elements that I'm not really expecting. Like it it started out with uh, the song you sent me started with these like staticky swells, but they were still there was a lot of musical things going on there but the way they were building it in made it feel like mechanical and industrial but not in a nine inch nails way um uh so i and it was not what i was expecting because i was expecting it to be like super heavy straight from the punch and they they seem to use these textures and these uh slow builds to kind of add to that intensity which i think is pretty cool yeah definitely yeah it's they get grouped in with metal bands a lot. So, you know, Tom described it as slow core and I think that's apt and, uh, it, it tends to be kind of on the depressive side of things, but not necessarily more angry or in your face. Like a lot of, uh, you know, metal and black metal and stuff tends to be, I think it's kind of getting, uh, it still scratches a similar itch to a lot of the, black metal you've shown me but in a way in a much more interesting way that i didn't see coming it's cool it's atmospheric i dig yeah, it exactly yeah i hope everybody enjoys my conversation with tom um i sure had a good time talking to him and uh we'll probably talk to him again soon yeah maybe we'll have our first part too i'd be into it oh yeah well sounds good we all enjoy the episode how i mean it would probably be a niche product but if i could buy a ipod with like a two or a four terabyte uh hard drive on it i would be ecstatic like i would love to have something like that you can uh actually it's funny somebody i know just messaged me because i had the battery die in my ipod classic mm-hmm. oh, man and i was just talking about it online and someone said hey i have the plug and play kit because they made them so you could make attachments now inside and do terabyte dro- flash drives in them instead of the old heart, you know. So that's what I'm going to do next. I'm going to upgrade it to oh, awesome. like a terabyte. Yeah, so you Hell can yeah. do it. I 
I'm going to ask this person a lot of questions because I am not <laughs> savvy with that kind of stuff. But yeah, you could do it. That's that's good to know because I always feel like uh, like I always want to listen to music in the car, but I never want to you know use all that data and right, you... right, Ex- exactly. Yeah, and I, I live in South Carolina, yeah. so. If I drive any direction for an hour or two, I'm going to hit a rural area that probably doesn't have good, uh, you know, good connections. So, and that's the same way I am in Pennsylvania. If I start driving west a little bit, it becomes no man's land in a couple spots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I, so. I knew you're from uh, Pennsylvania. What what part of the state are you from? I'm from the northeast part of the state. Just I I always tell everybody I'm from Wilkes-Barre, just because that's where our music scene is here, but I live about 10 minutes South of Wilkes-Barre. Mm-hmm. Nice. I've, I've got my, pretty much all my family so, lives in Pennsylvania. I love it up there. What part? Um, mostly around the Allentown area. Um, okay. That's like maybe an hour from here. So mm-hmm. yeah, all, all the little like old factory towns and stuff like that around there. Everybody's kind of spread out. Yeah. I know that area. Well, that's cool. Do you think, uh, you know, I, I know, I, I guess this goes back to the packaging thing. You have a whole lot of photography, uh, in your records. Um, I, I mean, more than illustration, I think, uh, is that, are, are those photographs that you've taken or do you have uh, people? A lot are. And, and then I also have a few friends that I work with too, like the, the front cover of blow the house from college he posted it one day like maybe like two years before the record was even like i was just in the middle of starting to write the record but i had a vision in my head and i immediately called him and said take that down like can i use that for this and like we held on to it for like two years but yeah i I do i usually myself for friends that's awesome is that um is that a, a pennsylvanian scene no, it is not. It is a Columbus, Ohio. Okay. But the idea is it looks like, like you said, like any of these old factory towns. It looks like any of these. And that's like that friend lives in Los Angeles now. And we've been talking a lot about, you know, when you hit these like little areas of towns. And it looks like maybe 50, 60 years ago, it was super built up. And there was a reason for people to be there. But they're dead now. And what was the thing that brought people there? And that's, we've been talking, it's funny. It's many years after the album release, but we're finally, we're talking to each other about these things now. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. It, your music all has like a pretty specific kind of sense of space. Um, and I, I imagine that some of that comes from, uh, you know, where you're from. I, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe, and maybe it's in my roots. Because when I started the the project, I was actually living in New Jersey for probably a decade. But yeah, it could be that just growing up in the mountainous area and stuff had some part of that. Yeah, I I definitely get like a feeling of kind of like isolation and you know, kind of uh, it, the re- the records definitely feel like cold weather music to me. You know. Yeah, I I could see that. So uh, what what was kind of going on in New Jersey when you first started writing the, the first record? Wow, fuck. Uh, I, 
that was I started writing that at the tail end of 2006, so it was a long time ago already. I don't know. I was early 20s, and I was just recording all the time. I I had a little setup in the basement of the house we were renting, and I don't know. It just I don't know if a lot of my stuff ever has like deliberate like all right I'm gonna do this or work on anything. It's just it's more all right. I've been messing around with some stuff. All right, it's starting to like take some kind of shape. And now, all right, now other things are starting to take shape. We'll see how we can get them together. But there's never, ever like this. I need to do that. And it's just, I let the project be free and open for that reason. Yeah, you're not writing concept albums where you have to map the whole thing out from start to finish. Right, right. Now, if if I start seeing a theme or something, yeah, we could work on, I'll, I'll, I'll try to pull some of that together. So it's kind of cohesive, but yeah, there's no, Oh, he goes here and subplot. And like, I'm not getting <laughs> into any of that kind of stuff, which I do love records like that, but I just can't do it. Yeah. That's cool. Um, do you remember what, what kind of music was inspiring you for that first record? I know towards the tail end when I did a lot more of the work, I mean, I was crazy about Boris's Pink album and Boris's Smile. Um, man, again, I I own, and, like, that was a huge time in my life where I had a best friend that we had, like, four or five really good record stores around, and we'd hit them mm-hmm. up all the time. So, I mean, that I was constantly just absorbing everything. That's cool. No, that's a great uh, pair of Boris records. Um, and I, that kind of makes sense. You know, your, your music has sort of this like kind of like unrushed feel to it. Yeah, but that that 2008 when Smile came out, I want to say I saw Boris six or eight times that year. <laughs> I was like Hell obsessed. Yeah. I, I did my first tour, but I was like just following like Boris Mm -hmm. and I never get, I don't, I don't rarely ever hear anybody ever say that I sound like Boris. I'm like, fuck, I was everything (laughs) I'm doing. I was like, I was really into Boris and then trying to do these other things that I was doing. So yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, do you see they got a, uh, they're in the studio right now working on some new stuff. They're always working on stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Right. who did rainbow with them and that tour for smile he was their second guitarist the entire tour and those were the best shows i've ever seen so it's like super pumped for them to be doing like a release with just him again not just like a one or two songs but like it seems like they're going to do an album together again hell yeah I, I i think i heard like a like 30 second teaser or something like that the other day oh uh, i don't i i saw that they the thing is at work sometimes I don't I won't see any of the stuff with like sound. I'll just be like, oh shit, they're working with me show again. Or or yesterday they announced they're doing they have a record with Mersbo. Oh, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, excuse me. Um Yeah. Well, yeah, they two days in a row they were <laughs> showing stuff, but yeah, they're always working. Yeah, I know that they had a clip of the of the Mersbo track. Now now that now that you said that, I, I remember that more clearly. But yeah, that's awesome. Um yeah, so uh, 
you said you were following them around and it was like your first tour. Does that mean that you were playing? <laughs> you were following them and playing shows? No, no. I, I just considered it like a joke <laughs> of a tour because I was like, drove to Philly by myself, drove to New York City by myself, drove to Boston by myself. Actually, mm-hmm. Boston, my one friend came up with me for that. But but yeah, I, I, I just I joke about it, calling it a tour, but I was following Boris. And anytime they did a one-off anywhere near us in like Jersey or New York city, I went to see them too. That's awesome. Yeah. I, uh, I, I think Pennsylvania is a cool spot for that because, you know, I mean, obviously like Philly is a huge music town too, but you yeah. really can kind of hit if, if a band comes to the Northeast, you can hit one of the places they go. Well, yeah, at the time this happened, I was living in New Jersey. So, like, getting up into New York City was a 40-minute train ride. Yeah. Yeah, and an hour into Philly. I was closer to Philly living in New Jersey than I am now. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you you can get any of these places really easy. I tell this to West Coast bands all the time that I'm friends with. I'm like, yo, Pennsylvania, I'm like, three hours from here, four hours from here. I'm like, you could do quick weekenders, no problem. You know, I, I work I work in construction and I'm constantly fighting with guys because they're like, oh, if they get rid of the gas plants and all this stuff, what are we going to do for work? I'm like, what? you know, clean energy are going to be the same thing. We're still going to have to build them. We're still going to put piping and we're still going to cover stuff. All this stuff is still going to happen. We're still going to have jobs. So why can't we have jobs and better, you know, better <laughs> life? And it, it's just like over their heads. Yeah, it's wild. I'm not worried about jobs in the future. I, the thing I don't understand is why does everybody have to work now when technology is so much better? Yes, yes. Well, and that's then that that can go into another whole other conversation about people hating immigrants taking their jobs, but immigrants aren't taking your jobs. It's automation. It's computers. So, yeah. I mean, I I work. Uh, I do software development um, for my job. And most of a good chunk of software development is writing software that does software development. Like, right. Exactly. You're, you're writing yourself out of a job and, and people don't see these kind of things and they, they just want to get mad at somebody else. But yeah, it's, it's wild. Yeah. It, it's like, <laughs> I, I can, I can go off. <laughs> I, I can go off about politics for a while. Yeah, me too. So, uh, so I guess to get back to, to playing for burial stuff. So, um, so you're, you're checking out, uh, Boris, you're, you're doing some, uh, some spiritual road trips with them. Uh, how did you put out that, that first record leaving? Like what, well, what was the process um, like? When it first came out, I, I don't even remember the, the online service there was i think the guy who ran magic bolt records was he wasn't part of it but he was pushing some service that was like a proto band camp almost like you put your stuff up and after a certain amount of downloads or i don't i don't remember what it was but i had it up on there for a bit and i mean this was late 2009 so it was like big blog culture back then 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's how I found lots of bands too. People just post links on you know blogs, and we start. My one friend really helped me. We were just sending it to ones that we liked and said, "Hey, I you know try it out." And a lot of people, you know, started push you know putting it out, and you could see a little bit of traction it was getting. And then uh, I was also a member. This is like when Last FM had uh, like groups and Enemies List. The label had one. And, you know, I, I met a lot of friends from inside that group, and I think I just posted the link in there one day, and uh, Dan liked it, and uh, he just asked if they could put it out, and then the physical version came out in 2010. Yeah, that's cool. I, I that's knew like that you had... Summed up story. I knew that you had kind of like a big internet, like, uh, you know, kind of a, a boost from that. That's... That's cool. You're probably one of the first bands that really was able to like exist online and get a, you know, I don't even yeah, know where I, I'm going with this I question, but like, it, it no, seems, no, like, no, I, it I, seems I, cool that, you know, the blog culture and stuff was able to get people to listen to your record. Yeah. I, I think that happened for a lot of bands actually. So I don't want to take credit for first because have a nice life, I think did pretty well with that first um well not first but before me at least but yeah a lot of this stuff i don't think would have existed without the internet helping because and sharing so i mean that goes the other way where i'm like oh i need to have physical cds and releases blah 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 but i also understand i would give my stuff away for free i'm like here this is where you can find it to download it just listen i i understand it so that's really cool so, uh, do you still maintain, you know, connections with some of those, those early people, you know, that champion your music, like whether it's enemies list or, uh, anything else? Like yeah. That? Yeah. A lot of people I met on those early groups. I mean, I'm still friends with, see them when I'm on tour, like, you know, cause a lot of, some of them are like involved in music and if it's not just like on the writing side of it or playing, but yeah, I see these people when I'm on tour, uh, you know. I met Drew from the band Lone Summer from that site. And before COVID, I was supposed to go to his wedding this year. And, you know, like, yeah, there's still a lot of early connections. I, I recognize names that have been around for 10 years, you know, buying T-shirts off my big cartel. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I do recognize these people. That's awesome. I, I As a side note about your T-shirts, I was driving – actually, I was driving from Pennsylvania to South Carolina – once and I was in like Virginia and uh, I was stopped at a gas station and I was wearing a playing for burial shirt that said death, the false gloom on the back. And, uh, yeah, this guy and like some big honking SUV pulls up beside me and he was like, what's your shirt mean? And I was like, Oh, I don't know. Like it's a band. And, uh, he said something along the lines of you're not going to get anywhere being that negative. <laughs> I was oh, like, yeah, you, I man. think I did you. I don't know if I saw you post that somewhere online or you reached out, but I definitely remember that story somewhere. I, That's I, hilarious. I think I did post it online. Yeah. I th- yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I can't remember the exact words, but it was like this hilarious, like <laughs> the dude uh, took it so fucking seriously. And uh, a, a, a lot of people do. And I don't I don't get it because to me, it was like a big joke. I and it still it, is. 
yeah, Death Defaults Gloom, it seemed like a, a like it seemed satirical. It is. And, yeah. uh, you know, like, I'll, like the, I used to see, like, Death Defaults Metal all over the place. Like, mm-hmm. I, the one record store, every time, I, like, I felt like every time I went in there, somebody had a bumper sticker that said, like, Death Defaults Metal. <laughs> uh, I, I was seeing someone for a bit, and I think she, they were seeing, you know, someone else one night, and I woke up in there put it in her car or something like that, kind of knowing that, like, I was possibly there. And, you know, I even thought about in that terms. I'm like, this is just funny. Like, Death of False Gloom. So, and and, and that's what it was. And I know a lot of people, like, want to be serious about it, but there can be some side of silliness to things. And Mm. uh, I don't know. It was a joke, and I I feel like uh, that has just been, like, for playing for burial forever and it's still like so funny to me yeah that's awesome yeah i i, I think i got that at uh you probably don't remember this show because it was so long ago but it was with uh death heaven in Asheville, north carolina yeah uh, at the, the moth flight yes yeah 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 that was awesome yeah that was the first time that i saw you yeah that was uh i remember that show um I got really stoned before I played <laughs> and uh, I just stood there and I feel like two years later I came back through and I played like a house show and someone said, oh man, you're, you're a lot different live than you were when I saw you in off late. I was like, yeah, I was just like stoned, like just standing like stone. It's like, oh, <laughs> just trying to remember how to do things. I took it as just part of the show. Like I thought it was just like, uh, you know, just kind of like entranced kind of, I guess that makes sense though. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I, I think I was entranced, but yeah, I remember that show. Yeah. That's awesome. So, um, is that how you tour most of the time? I know I've seen videos of you playing with full bands and stuff. Uh, but is it mostly the, the solo with the, uh, live programming and stuff? Yeah, it's that's the way it always is. I think the video you might be talking about is like one where I uh, did something with Elizabeth Color Wheel in the studio. Yeah, that was just like a one-off. Like we were on tour together, and they had this uh, um, invitation, like to do one of those performances, and we thought it'd be cool if like they did one of my songs. So I went and did it with them. But yeah, it's always just me. Gotcha. I like that. Does that kind of go back to your days of? recording in that basement of just kind of like being responsible for the layering and stuff all yourself. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think when you saw me, the sets were a lot different where I was building the songs as I was going. Oh, I have a lot of things saved and loops that I'm triggering everything. So it's more of a performance. There's spots where I can actually like, you know, rock out a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, I think it's just, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think like what, what I'd even consider it. I know it comes down to being a control freak at some point, but it also has to do with, uh, you know, I, I'm responsible for myself. If I get a call tonight, you know, if shows were still happening, Hey, this is going on in Philly on Friday. Can you go? I'm like, yeah, all right. Now, all I have to do is talk to my partner if whether or not we got something going on. 
but chances are like, yeah, okay, I, I can make this work. I don't have to like call four or five bandmates. You know, if I'm going to fly out to California and do shows, it's so much cheaper for me just to have one plane ticket. Mm-hmm. It, it's just, it's, I would say convenience too, maybe. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, you know, I don't think about the practical side of that, but yeah, it makes sense. You, you kind of have more freedom. Yeah. Like halfway through a set, if I'm not feeling something like, all right, I'm going to change it up. Even though I had this plan for tonight. Well, on a dime changed up. I'm going to do this now. Mm-hmm. You know, I could read the room a little better and be like, all right, well, this is what I'm going to do tonight. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, so you you kind of have like a, a compositional aspect of like what of your stuff you have prepared you're going to, you know, uh, weave together in a certain way. Right, exactly. That's really And cool. then it's not, and like, I, I mean, I've been in bands where, yeah, if you want anything like that, it's, unless you're a really, really tight band that, you know, you jam all the time, it's hard to be doing that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm drop like no no we're not doing that go to this so <laughs> yeah yeah unless you uh I, I always see bands that have kind of like not necessarily jam bands but bands that have more of the improvisational things and you can tell that they all can hear each other in their in-ears because some guitar player will be staying away from the mic but like saying something out loud when they're playing yeah. i'm like oh they must be trying to get everybody else on i the mean same and page. I mean, there there are bands that just they're good like that. They they Fugazi was like that. I mean, they they just played constantly and they they understood each other's body language and stuff, and they kind of knew where to go. So, but yeah, it, it, that's something that takes years upon years to build up to do. Yeah, for sure. So, what um what other sorts of bands have you been in? I was actually talking to a friend about this morning. Mostly in high school, I was in like metalcore bands and stuff. So like for a long time, I always thought I was like this big metalhead growing up. And, you know, we were talking about the band and you will know us by the trail of dead today. And I was like, no, they were like one of my favorite bands. And, you know, my senior year of high school, I was like, I really wasn't a metalhead at all. But uh, yeah, I mean, I played drums in a punk band for a while and, we were really good, but when I moved back to Pennsylvania, it just kind of like fizzled out. And yeah, that's that's it pretty much. Yeah, that's cool. I it, it's funny you bring up the the question of metalhead or not metalhead, uh, because your music has kind of it feels like metal, but then you know this is something I was thinking about. I, I went back and and listened to you know everything that I had of yours, and I. Uh, I was like, some of these, some of these records don't have the typical metal hallmarks, even if they feel, I don't know where I'm going with that, but just kind of like, no, there's a, there's a lot of heaviness and stuff that you generate in your music that doesn't necessarily come from double bass and super high gain guitars all the time. Right. Uh, and again, I, I grew up playing a metal band, seeing screamo shows, being part of like hardcore and stuff. Um, but yeah, I listen to metal and I do, but I just, I, the way I was talking before, it's like, I thought that's all I did. I was just exactly double bass. I loved grindcore and stuff like that, but I think it's just pulling from, you know, everything that I've been trying to absorb 
for the last 30 years of just listening to music. So I don't know. I think that's where the metal tinge comes in, but I don't deliberately try to be metal. It's just what it is. Yeah, I, I can see a lot of like maybe a Joy Division kind of influence in it too. I I don't know if, yeah. uh, you know, some of those bands that might be a little bit before you're in my time, some of those like early New Wave bands, if any of that kind of makes I mean, its I, way I, through. I love Joy Division. I love New Order. I mean, it's it's hard for me to name things again because I know so much or not so much that I know so much, but I listen to so much. But yeah, like Joy Division, they were built on a lot of repetition repetition, and then just adding things and, you know, subtracting things. And that's how they made parts. So that mm. that's definitely there. Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely see that um, the kind of the adding and the removing of parts being, you know, an important, important part. Um, when you're when you're working on a song, um, you know, I know a lot of your stuff, you record yourself and you mentioned that was kind of how you started making that first record. Um, do you use like recording as sort of a songwriting, uh, you know, exercise? Do you like record as you're putting together pieces? I, I think I used to. Not so much anymore, but not saying it doesn't happen. I try to have a pretty fleshed out like structure at least like i need this this and this to happen and then once i get like you know like a basic building block to a song done i will uh you know i'll sit on it for months sometimes even a year and i'll be playing keyboard a lot or something you know that's like for some reason like for this month or whatever i'm really into my synths so I, I open some, you know, I'll open a session file up and be like, what, what can I add here? And then at the same time, it's like, once I start getting into mixing stuff, I start dropping things, adding stuff. So it, it is there, but I don't set out to do it that way. That makes sense. Is uh, Was guitar your first instrument? No, drums actually were, which is funny because playing for Braille is not known for uh, drums. Well, you do have like a, a cool drum setup uh, with the the trigger pad. Was that kind of, you know, when you were first starting out, was that kind of out of com- convenience or is that like an aesthetic yeah. thing? Well, convenience. Um, I mean, even going back to like my very first band growing up, like we didn't know anybody who played drums. Like I played them, but I didn't have a kit and I wasn't like good at it. I so Casio keyboard drums and stuff, you know, it's how we did it. And then when I was like 14, I, after a whole summer of cutting grass for like four or five neighbors, I bought a, my first drum machine. So, and then the same thing, it was just me and my friend, we'd be hanging out in his bedroom, just working on song scaler, but we'd have the drum machine there. So yeah, again, awesome. convenient. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely know, especially when you're younger. I mean, it's notoriously hard to find a drummer um anyway and i was i was in this band and uh i was probably also around 14 and uh i <laughs> we wanted to kick out our drummer and we wanted our friend to play drums but he wasn't a drummer so i bought like the worst like 50 dollar complete drum set <laughs> from somebody <laughs> 
and I bought it and I put it in my garage and I said, okay. And I didn't know how really how to know how to play drums, but I said, okay, you're going to be our drummer and I'm going to teach you how to drum on, on these, this $50 drum set I found. But, that, but that's perfect. I mean, that's what you should be doing as, you know, a teenager or even now, you know, try to th- try things, just figure it out. Like you don't need to be watching YouTube videos and stuff, which they do help, but it's just, for me, it was always just like one day I decided I wanted a guitar. My begged my parents forever. They bought me a guitar. I took like maybe a month of lessons. And then I just figured it out with friends. Yeah. Write absolutely. songs together. Yeah. I, I just, I love that. That like, just like what you just said right there about, well, I bought a drum kit, so I'm going to, you're going to figure it out. I love that. I love that. Yeah. I also, I kind of hate like the YouTube guitar scene for lack of a better term. It's just like very competitive and very like materialistic. And also it's really depressing to constantly see like 12 year olds be much, much better at this thing that you've done your entire life. I'm I'm fine with that aspect, but what you said about the, the competitiveness and the materialisticness, I mean, I can't talk on materialism because I own so many amplifiers and pedals and stuff, but I'm not like, crazy about it i think a lot of time like when blow the house came out it started being like everybody's asking me like oh what's your favorite pedal and i kept saying my mantra was acoustic guitar (laughs) i'm like i sit and i sit and play my acoustic i'm trying to write songs which i'm not saying you know i love pedals and stuff but that whole culture around it recently i'm just like yeah i'm pulling back from it a little bit yeah no i'm the same way i mean i love uh i just got a new amp and i'm absolutely in love with it i just i think that like the especially kind of like the YouTube YouTube personalities and stuff like it's never about guitar. It's always just like a paid promotion thing. Well, it's just that is true too. Like, what kind of amp did you get? I uh, just got an orange. Speaking Sick. of Boris, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, it, and it was because of Boris because like I love Boris and I I've never owned like a good orange amp. I've had an orange, like kind of crappy solid state combo back in the day, but I was like, I'm going to get, get a real one. Uh, in it. Yeah. Actually speaking of pedals, I've sold like three pedals since I got it because I don't need them anymore. So it's pretty, it's a pretty it's good amp to just plug into and play. Like it, it just sounds awesome. You know? Yeah. That, that's awesome. I, I know in some of your artwork, uh, you have some old Fender uh, silver faces. Yeah. <laughs> Is that kind of your your main? I would say a lot of stuff I've been recording lately, I've been using those. Uh, and it was funny, I went back to some of my like half stacks recently after, and I'm like, oh, these sound so different. But mm-hmm. yeah, uh, the, the Fender, uh, the silver faces... I specifically have them from 77 to 79 because they, they, they were, what are they called or whatever? They're 135 Watts. <laughs> <laughs> they are excruciating loud, which is funny. I mean, model T is still way louder than both of them, mm-hmm. but yeah, I have a 77 and 79 and I am crazy. I keep thinking like the one store by us had a 78. They only made them for those three years. I'm like, should I buy a 78 just because, <laughs> And I'm like, I don't need it. I really don't need it. But I'm crazy with, with things like that sometimes. I didn't I didn't get it. 
but yes, I, I love the Fender Twins. Yeah, yeah, those are those are badass amps. Yeah, 135 for, for, watts. God, I mean, I guess <laughs> they weren't they weren't made for modern PA systems. No, no, and what's like I said, my my I have a their Model T reissues, but they're even crazy to come by now. But they are still louder than the Twins. Oh yeah. Do you do you know of uh do you know of Hilbish? Uh I don't know too much about them, but I was actually talking to somebody about them today because they do some kind of sun for for King Buzzo. Yeah, that's that's what I was gonna bring up. I actually have one of them. Yeah. I have one of one of the preamps, um which is like a it's a sun um beta lead. So it's a preamp and then you what do you run it into a power section or something? Yeah, I I have a uh, just like a big loud uh solid state power amp that I run it into sometimes. Yeah, awesome. I mean that's that's what Buzzo does too. He's all solid state. I, I thought about that for a bit just to like, you know, save some wear and tear on my back. But then I was thinking I'm like, man, a solid still a solid state a big power amp is still gonna be pretty heavy. Oh yeah, it's heavy as shit. <laughs> Exactly. So I'm like, you know, I, I'd be trying to eliminate this, but I wouldn't be doing much better. And then just amassing more gear. But yeah, it, it's definitely a route I thought about for a while. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he, you know, King Bozo has such a specific need for how his stuff needs to sound too. Like, right. I mean, I don't think he could. I mean, I'm sure he could get closer than anybody else to his own thing. But like, if he was playing your Fender Twins or something, you know, it just it wouldn't sound the same. It would not sound the same. Uh, like, I I need a Fender Twin because I need the clean headroom. I need uh, super loud volumes. I need things to stay clean, mm-hmm. and I'll use pedals to push. But for him, like, it's definitely part of the amp breakup once you start pushing it. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember. I remember that show at the Mothlight. Uh, I don't know if it was a, a Fender Twin at the time, but I know that it was super loud. Uh, that was 2014? That sounds or, right. Yeah, so that tour was a Model T reissue. Okay, that uh, makes sense why it was so loud then. <laughs> yeah, I had that. I had a PV Ultra 120, and then I had a Fender Solid State Combo. And that was definitely the sound for that tour. Nice. Yeah. That's the thing. I, I can remember by errors what amps I had with me. Mm-hmm. Was that cool touring with um, Def Heaven? Well, it wasn't even touring. I, I just jumped on that show. I had, oh, I had known. Okay. Yeah. I had known them um, for quite a bit at that point. And it was just, I was already planning on like a two week tour or something like that. And it was just like, happened to be, I was coming through and I was like, like, cool, can I get on this? And the guy who owned Mothlight also ran this record label called Bathetic. And they put me out as part of this 11 tape split thing. So I hit him up and he's like, oh, hell yeah. So that's how that happened. Nice. Nice. That's cool. It just, it just so happened. I was like, yeah, just this. I have this tour date open. I'm coming through that way, anyways. So, hell yeah! I didn't realize that you weren't on tour with them because y'all fit well together. Yeah, they were. Uh, I think on that point, they were just coming off of a tour opening for Between the Buried Me and Intro Knot. 
Yeah, yeah, that was that. Yeah, that was definitely that that same year. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, that was good times. That was a good show, but I, I played Moth Lake maybe last year or two years ago. Two years ago again. I don't. I don't know. Is that even a venue anymore? I thought yeah. it was getting sold. Yeah, it's kind of tough for venues like that anymore. You know, they're so tightly packed. Like, what are you going to do? Have a show for ten people? You know. Right. Right. Exactly. But I think. I think they were actually planning on closing prior to COVID, though. So. Oh, gotcha. It's a, it's a shame, though. But I, I was wondering if anybody was planning on rebuying it or what. But I don't. COVID happened, so I don't know. Not to get back into the COVID. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, that's cool. So uh, that must have been after your second full length, right? It was. It was right before it actually. Uh, I think. I think some of the songs came out like singles or whatever by then. That was March of 2014, and the record came out in May. Okay. I when you said that, I remembered. So you had. I think it was like a tour CD. Yeah, something like that. With and I. I. I, now that I'm thinking about it, it had some of the songs that were on your second record, but it wasn't your second record. Yeah. Yeah. In the early days, I used to tour without like a record because I wasn't touring off of leaving. I didn't figure out how to play a lot of those songs live until like how I would physically do it until maybe two or three years ago. And so I was just, I'd have all these other like random tapes and stuff that I'd be doing like recording projects, but I wasn't playing any of that stuff. I would have t-shirts and that was like an eye opener for me. Cause I kept joking to friends for a long time. Cause I played my second record for like a year or two before it even came out. And I used to joke, Oh, this is the only way you're ever going to hear these songs and ever going to record them. And then like it dawned on me on one tour. I was like, you know, I need to have this record out because I keep going on tour and I don't have anything to show for what the people have just seen. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. We, uh, with comfort monk, we, we've put out some, some records this year and we have kind of the opposite problem of putting out physical copies of these records that are great. Uh, but the bands can't, can't tour them yet. So. Right. Uh, I mean, there's bands on the flenser even that like the band sprain. I, I was booking a tour for them and my other friends band Sonnet. And I was like, man, I, I can't wait. I've seen them on the East Co- or the West Coast a few times. And I'm just like, man, they're going to come out East now. I'm going to play a show or two of them. I can't wait. And then, cool, the record came out and they can't tour off of it. And that's that's got to be crazy for not just them, but everybody who's got that. Yeah, for sure. Because who, know, who knows by the time, you know, it's time to tour again or play any kind of shows, if these bands are practicing, maybe they're past that material now because – a lot of bands have that material for so long before it gets released. They're probably already working on new stuff. And when it's time to play live, they don't want to revisit all the older stuff. But, you know, where's where's that line going to be? Because you're going to have new fans because, oh, this is your debut album. But, oh, I don't want to <laughs> play that stuff anymore because it's yeah. so old at this point. Yeah, so. especially, yeah, if you're if you recorded something two years ago, you know, and it's just coming out now. Right. By the time I, I, you might I, be able to play it live, it might be getting up to four years right yeah. it, there's there's a lot of like what ifs with a lot of this so you mentioned uh the flinzer how did your relationship with them get started 
Um, so I used to run a small record label, mostly like tapes and CDs called Music Ruins Lives from like 2010 to 2004-ish, maybe 2015. I don't know if it went quite into 2015. Um, but uh, I put out this band called Reckon Reference, who are also on the Flenser now. They were a Bay Area band. And I guess they were already in contact with the Flenser about, you know, putting out their first record. And uh, I decided in 2011 I was going to come out to the West Coast because the whole internet thing, mm-hmm. you know, I had a little bigger sense of myself than I really had worth. So I was like, I'm going to go out West. I'm going to go play some shows. I, I had just ended a really long relationship. Um, so I was like, fuck it. I'm going to go out to the West Coast for two weeks, see what happens. So they helped me with the show and uh, I needed a show for San Francisco and they got me in contact with Jonathan who runs the Flenser. And that's how we first started talking. I played one, a Flenser showcase in 2011 and we just kept <laughs> in contact. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Yeah. We, we kept in contact over the years. And uh, again, when I came back through in 2013 to play more shows, he helped set up a lot of those and he came out to see me. And, you know, through all this period, he kept being like, hey, when you record another record, and like, you know, my same thing I was telling you, like the joke, oh, I ain't ever doing it. And um, I think it was before one show, we were all sitting around on a couch or something. And I casually mentioned, I'm like, yeah, I had just had to finish mixing this one thing. And he, he perked up. And as soon as I got home from tour, there was an email like, hey, send me what you have. And it just went from there. That's awesome. Yeah. And you've done your last yeah. couple records with them. Yeah, uh, 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 he did a reissue of like, like an EP collection, more of my like lo-fi quiet stuff. Yeah, so he, and he, he reissued the uh, the first album on LP twice already now. That's awesome. Yeah, I, so. I saw he recently had uh, some some uh, like a repress, and there was a like companion booklet, and like a yeah. companion zine to it, and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, I mean, it was the the le- my very first album. It's the eleven year anniversary. I called it the eleven year because technically it came out in two thousand nine. The first physical version didn't come out to two thousand ten, and I just think there's something goofy about having it be the eleventh anniversary. Yeah, why do anniversary but, celebrations have to be even numbers? Right. Um, so yeah, uh, it came with like like an extra ten inch that had some songs from the period that i never released uh we did a version that had i found i don't set for it on to like to make something so back in 2006 to 2009 when i was working on that record i was just recording it's just what i always have done since i was a kid so i didn't have a lot of photos around or anything so i was like what the fuck am i gonna put in this this box so i wrote a little bit about it and then because just different things happen and end up, you know, coming out a year later than we were originally expecting. I'm finally going through boxes in my house and I found a CDR. It was 2007. It was just all this other stuff. I totally forgot about. It, so we, we did a cassette version with that. So like it, it, it started something when I, I started putting it together about a year and a half ago, but it, like, I've been in like archive mode lately. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, at at the time you were probably making so many recordings that they just were able to fall by the wayside. And Yeah, I mean, 
I, I mean, I even do it now. I start working on something. And if, you know, I get super hyped on something for maybe like a week and I'm playing at the house all the time. And then I go to record it and I get a lot of the basic stuff done. Nah, I'm not into this anymore. So a lot of that stuff was like that too, like just constantly recording. So fast forward, um, you know, uh, below the house, that one, I also, I think I saw a lot of, uh, online buzz and stuff about that. Um, did that feel like any kind of, you know, turning point, any kind of difference in the, you know, the, the playing for burial project's name? I, I don't think it was immediate. I would say like now, I mean, the record's next year is going to be four years old already. And I feel like I see more from that record now than I did right when it first released. Like, uh, like, so same going back to leaving when the box that came out the 11th anniversary, Flenzer made like a joke post on Instagram. Like, where were you 11 years ago? And like so many people were like, I was in middle school. Like I'm, they're just 18 now and people are just finding the record now, you know? So you see things like that. Or like, I can't believe it still has a life. Like we just did a fourth pressing of the record and people are still going crazy for it. And that's, like I said, at first, when it first came out, people were excited. Definitely the buzz. Like, and, and it's weird to even say that, like, but it did. But I felt like it was more gradual. Like the first year of touring, crowds got a little bit bigger but i i still don't play to a lot of people i'm still very niche experimental a little harsh at times but 2018 i was starting to see like a lot more people at shows and i was like oh okay and i i i had a couple opportunities for some festivals in europe and i was like yeah this shit would never have happened yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I, w- I was just talking to Chuck Johnson, and he was saying that about his first record, that like it came out to not a whole lot of fanfare at first. And then when he was putting out his second record, uh, I was like, oh, I guess a lot of people liked that one. <laughs> like, you know, right? maybe, maybe some things just, uh, you know, I imagine, you know, you said you're a little bit niche. Uh, I imagine you're, you know, you're reaching new people probably a lot through like word of mouth and stuff, which is, you know, just going to be slower in general. Yeah, definitely. And like there, there's a girl who's been ordering for me now. And I, I just know she was like buying shirts or records, but like when I'm packing orders, I'm like, Oh, you're like 40 minutes from me. And I'm like, that's crazy. Like did a friend tell you, like it was probably the internet, but like, that's things I think about too. Like, I'm like, I don't play to a whole lot of people when I play hometown shows, but like I keep sending records out to people not too far from the area. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. You got to think that there's just like a mesh of people that are all, you know, sharing your music and stuff. And like you said, you said the blog thing. Um, I mean, I think that's the great thing about, you know, non pop music is that you kind of, everybody that's into a specific thing that's not, you know, it's not incredibly popular. It's not incredibly like the lowest common denominator thing. You, yeah. It's kind of like everybody becomes a champion of it in a certain way. Yeah. I, I definitely see that. 
I mean, I've done it myself. <laughs> Bands I love. So, yeah, I think you're very right with that. And it just builds momentum sometimes. And I, and I know I got incredibly lucky with that kind of stuff. Well, I'm sure it was lucky in that it's really hard to find any footing in the music industry. But, well, I mean, the yeah. material, you know, your records speak for themselves, you know. But as, how, how, I was going to say, but how many great local bands that just don't get noticed and fizzle out? Or how many people put out great records that just, for whatever reason, people didn't latch on to and... I mean, it, it is incredible luck, I, I would say, if you believe in those kind of things, which I mostly don't, but something had to happen where I got lucky. I know what you mean. We actually, uh, there was a an excellent, excellent Columbia band uh, that, you know, was together for a few years, and they put out, I think, like two EPs, and it was just like, mind-blowingly good like what if they weren't from columbia they would still be one of my like favorite bands and i was right. just saying something to somebody the other day about them and i was like it really sucks that like it just never the you know the timing was never right or whatever it, it happens <laughs> i mean it's it, it sucks but it does but some of those bands have a chance to live on now because of the internet and say someone like you just been like hey check this out and then you know like COVID, it's spreading through to friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there was, um, I had some good, uh, more like Southeastern Pennsylvania music um, from, uh, oh man, I can't believe I started this and I'm blanking on the name. Uh, uh, but it, it was like a small, um, it was a small, you know, local label. And I was spending some time, uh, me and my dad were staying at my, my grandma's house for a couple of weeks and just going to shows, you know, and like in Philly and, you know, other places. And, um, so I, I met this guy at all these shows and he was, you know, running this little record label. Oh, it was uh square of oppositions records. Okay. I know square of opposition. And like, so I have a bunch of that stuff still and it was really good. And, you know, some of those bands got really big, like this bike is a pipe bomb, you know, obviously they're, you know, pretty fucking well known now, but there were all these just like great, like one-off like hardcore records and stuff. And I was like, man, if, if the right person came along and that would listen to me and I could just be like, yo, check out these 10 records by this like tiny rural Pennsylvania record label, you know? But it's, it's very cool that like those things do exist. And for like, a crowd of a hundred to 200, like from that scene or from that area really, really like gravitates and like, Oh man, do you remember this? And I think that's also very cool too, that little micro things like that could still happen in the internet age. That is true. Yeah. There, there's something to be said for the sort of like enjoying something and feeling like it's not just easily acceptable, accessible yeah. by everybody else. Right, it's ours, and that that I mean that goes to everybody who I think so, somewhere along the line everybody just like wants to gatekeep a little bit, mm-hmm. like oh this this is my favorite band you can't like them and, and I get it I do but yeah it's still very cool that like yeah you could belong to something it's ours it's like me and my ten friends and you know we love this and it's, these are our friends making the music I think that's pretty cool oh yeah for sure. 
Yeah, there was this uh, this weird videotape that one of my good old friends had, and it was uh, like a Jeff Daniels movie, and it was based on a play that Jeff Daniels had written, and it was just like, you know, super low budget, uh, you know, all no-name actors except for Jeff Daniels, and uh, it was just like this weird, weird thing, and we would always watch it, and we enjoyed it, and it was hilarious, and we'd, you know, drink and quote this movie and stuff, and then one day, like a decade later, I'm on the Netflix, uh, you know, interface and I'm scrolling past some things and I see this fucking movie and I was like, no, I was like this, this bizarre thing that I just like shared with this group of my friends. Now a bunch of people are going to watch it and gives it ones because it's like a stupid movie, <laughs> you know? Right, right. Exactly. Oh, that's cool though. Still. But yeah, it is nice when you can still hold on to not in the sense of like smug superiority, but just like having yeah, something I, that, that feels, you know, that feels kind of special and not picked over. Right. So that I don't know. I, I like it. Yeah, for sure. I won't keep you too much longer. I know we've gone for pretty long today, uh, but to close out and this kind of is perfect for this. Uh, speaking of this, uh, what are some records that you would, you think people should listen to? Not necessarily anything right. that, you know, it doesn't have to be something that directly influenced planning for burial or anything. Yeah. Just like a couple things that, you know, you've been loving lately. So I've been loving this record by a band called Muzz, which is, uh, members of the Walkman and Interpol. Oh, cool. And, uh, I don't, I can't even describe it. There's something about it. It's it's indie rock. It's a studio project. It's, it's been hitting me lately. And strangely enough, like I'm a big CD buyer first, but it was like one of those records I loved enough. I'm like, I'm going to buy the LP. And I found it in the clearance bin already at the record store. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> so, but I grabbed it. I mean, I did. Mm-hmm. I've been listening to that a lot. Oh, man, what else have I been listening to? Hold on. Let me let me pull up my last FM. Oh, nice. I've been listening to the, the new Bing and Ruth record a lot. What is that? Um uh, it's an experimental project. Uh, I think they're on four A D now. But nice. uh a lot of his early stuff was like um Modern classical minimalist. I wouldn't even say minimalist. I'm I'm terrible at genres, but a lot of piano, a lot of just like, but it's insane piano work. But the new record is all organ, and uh, I absolutely just love the sound of organs and pianos. And I think it's like the record I listen to almost every night right now is that new Bing and Ruth. Nice. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Uh, the new Microphones record. I'm a huge, 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 huge Phil Elverum fan, and uh, that record just hit me in some way. It just feels hypnotic, and uh, I, I don't know. It feels like a warm blanket on the first like cold night of the year, and I don't know. It's nostalgic. It's nostalgic without like being like, oh, this happened. Like, why can't things be like this anymore? It's just it's more like, no, these things happened. This is my life. I'm just kind of sharing the story, and I and I love that. Um, I I think those are like the big ones for me right now. 
Let me see something else quick. I'm going through my last stuff and to see if anything really like sticks out on me. Oh yeah. I know how that is. When people ask me about like what yeah. movies I've seen recently, I have to look, I have to look at the list. Uh, the, the new record by doves, the UK band. I'm not into that. I listen to a lot of like indie and a lot of alternative rock and, I just I just bought the uh, Tom Petty Wildflowers and all the rest, a big deluxe edition of that. Nice. I've been I've been digging into that today on the way home from work. I listened to the home recordings, so I, that that's what I've been listening to. It's either like crazy like modern piano like wildness and organs, folky stuff, or you know some Tom Petty rock. Hell yeah, yeah. Well, you can't get enough of any of that stuff. <laughs> I, yeah. I know I actually know what you're talking about with that sort of like the modern classical undefinability of it. Like I, I hear stuff like that all the time and I'm always just like, I don't I don't know. Like it sounds lame yeah, to compare it to Philip Glass, so you know. It's it's in that realm, but it's a little more there's more composition to it. Well, not saying Philip Glass doesn't, but Philip Glass, Steve Reich it's all very like get in the mode and and things start phasing and changing. Whereas this is more like, all right, check out these wild piano runs I'm going into. Mm -hmm. Nice. But actually speaking, speaking of modern, like classical sort of stuff, I just interviewed, um, Yosef von Vissum, the lute player. He does, uh, you know, he, the lute player. (laughs) You know, if, if you know a loot player, if you know one loot player, it's probably him. Uh, but he was talking a little bit about composition and, you know, he does a whole lot of like uh, that sort of thing where it's kind of like let it slowly phase and change over time. I thought it was pretty cool. That's uh, kind of where I've been. I haven't really been playing guitar too much, but I've been building loops of like piano stuff and trying to like go that route with two different delays or something like that. That's where, that's mm-hmm. where I've been lately. Just like letting the same piano loop go over and over, but each speaker starts getting tweaked a little bit, like each channel. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, cool. Tom, I really yep. appreciate you uh, spending so to- so much time with me today and it's been fun. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I felt like we could have talked for a little bit longer. even. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like I told you at the beginning, I'm like, yeah, conversation base. That's the way to go. Hell yeah. All right. Well, cool. Well, uh, hopefully we can have you back on sometime. I would love to. This has been a Comfort Monk production.